Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Marilyn Beekman, who is Emerita Professor of Evolutionary Biology at the University of Sydney. Her research is focused on evolutionary questions. Welcome, Marilyn. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your papers, recent papers from 2019, Thermodynamic Constraints and the Evolution of Parent Provisioning in Vertebrates. Uh, you say, uh, why is postnatal parallel provisioning so rare in ectothermic vertebrates, while prolonged parallel care is almost ubiquitous in endotherms? You say we argue that the, the scarcity of postnatal parallel care is a result of ectothermy itself, while almost all endothermic young require prolonged postnatal care due to thermal constraints. Ectothermic physiology does not pose the same constraints. So, for my own understanding, uh, Madeline, so ectothermy means sort of cold-blooded animals that's getting heat from outside, and that's correct. And endotherms are essentially generating heat from inside the body, right? Correct. And so, so what do you find here uh, between these two varieties of vertebrates? So maybe I should explain where this question came from in the first place because I'm very interested in the evolution of social behavior. And um so most of my career I've been working on social insects, particularly honeybees but also ants. And I was giving a seminar at some stage where I tried to talk more generally about the evolution of social behavior, not just about social insects but also social vertebrates many birds are social there's some mammals who are social and i always like putting up pretty pictures so i was putting pretty pictures up from social animals and then i realized well there's a large class of animals missing that's the fish the reptiles and the amphibians and then i started looking into it and thinking well there are no social examples there's a few exceptions which are really 
very interesting exceptions. So I started asking myself the question, why aren't there any social ectothermic vertebrates? But then, of course, someone pointed out, well, there's no parental care in ectothermic vertebrates either, and that is always the first step to any social behavior. So then I started, so this is, you know, years and years and years in the making, and then some, someone else again pointed out, well, there might be a really good reason why there's no parental care in ectothermic vertebrates. If the conditions are bad, they basically slow down their metabolism because they don't need a lot of resources because they're so energy efficient that they can basically turn it up if there's a lot of food, if the temperature is correct, they, they have those growth spurts. If it's cold and there's not a lot of food, they basically you know, reduce their uh, metabolism and don't grow. I mean, everyone probably knows these jokes that if you have a snake as a pet, and I used to have a snake as a pet, you go on holidays, you just put it in a fridge because <laughs> then it doesn't need food. I'm not sure if that's true, so please do not put a pet snake in a fridge if you have one. But that's sort of the idea um, behind it. Um, and of course, if you, particularly if you think about a small bird, just think about a, a chicken. Because these things are, grown, are born or they hatch from the egg being extremely small. And the surface to a volume ratio is extremely disadvantaged in the sense that they they lose a lot of heat because they have a lot of surface relative to their volume. And I'm, I'm a very small person and I don't like cold climates because I just dissipate heat like crazy. So that's a, that's a huge constraint that we warm-blooded animals have. So the, this little chick really needs to grow really fast, which means it needs its parents to feed it a lot of food because of course it needs nutrients to be able to generate the heat to grow really fast. Now ectotherms do not have that constraint because they don't generate heat generally and they can just take it easy. They're just much more relaxed um, kind of animal if you wish. So that was a verbal argument that I've tried to publish um, for a few years and as you know with verbal arguments people can have different opinions and it's hard to prove and then just by chance I bumped into someone who was doing modeling work who was interested in these kinds of life history questions and we teamed up and he produced a model that basically confirmed the verbal argument. Yeah. Now Having a model that confirms a verbal argument, of course, doesn't mean that the verbal argument is really true, because you can come up with a different model that shows you something different. But apparently, it convinced the editors of a journal um, enough to publish the paper now with a model that sort of confirms this verbal argument. Because what we really need to be able to do is go back in evolutionary time and see how ectotherms and endotherms diverged, what the driving pressures were, but that's something we can do. Yeah, so it, it's really fascinating, uh, Madeline. So it, it seems to me that physics drives biology, and then biology drives behavior. Yes. So ultimately, we could conclude that physics drives behavior in biological systems. Is that is that a good way to think about it? 
To a large extent, yes. But of course, you can also take it a step further and say chemistry drives physics and physics drives biology. So <laughs> in the end, everything is chemistry, <laughs> which, which of course is also true. But you're right. I mean, that's an interesting, it's an interesting way of putting it, I think, because as an evolutionary biologist, we often try and understand or we try to come up with ideas as to how an organism should optimize its fitness. So how can it behave in a way that it produces the most offspring, etc. And then again, from a fitness maximizing point of view, you can come up with beautiful behaviors. And then you go out and try and find organisms that actually behave according to your prediction, and you you find, well, they're not doing it. Mm. And why is that? Often because they're constraints, either the physical constraints, and another really important constraint um, inf is information constraint. Because we sit in our armchairs and we hypothesize about what an organism should be doing, Having all the information that is out there, but of course an individual organism or a species or whatever doesn't have, doesn't necessarily have all this information. So they're constrained. There's only so much they can do. So, uh, yes, just to summarize, I think, so it's it's um, physiology or physics and information that are the three big constraints. Information as a constraint. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So... Um, given a sort of a simple objective function of perpetuating its own genes, um, it, it's basically taking advantage of the environmental factors, the ectothermic um, organisms, saying there isn't a lot I could do <laughs> with, the, with the young. I, I would rather focus on the next one. Whereas the endothermic ones, um, they really have to get this uh, the, the 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 young to to really be viable, right? They they have to give them food and make them secure and all of that. So it's a very complex uh, set of things that they have to do to to perpetuate that objective function. Even the objective function apparently is the same for both classes. It is, but they achieve it in a different way. Correct. Yes. You talk about the size difference between parents and offspring. Could you talk a bit about that? So, what what is the relevance of the size difference between the parents and the offspring? Yes, I I admit that um, there are different arguments coming in to answer that question. So, one question I was thinking about is. Um, does it matter if the offspring is so much smaller than the parent? Is that another constraint? So if I, if my offspring are tiny, 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 is there anything I can do to feed them? And in ectotherms, offspring often are really, really, really tiny compared to the parents. So I thought, well, that might be one constraint. For example, it could be that the offspring, because they're so tiny, they live in a completely different environment. Think of um, frogs, for example. The adults tend to live on land. The offspring live in water. So this is physical separation between the parent and the offspring. Or if you think of many fish fry, 
they are so small compared to the adult. Can the adult then actually feed the fry even if that would benefit the fry? And I thought, well, that probably makes it more difficult if the, the parents have a completely different diet to the offspring because they, there's this, this massive size difference. But then, of course, if you think about mammals, um, we also have a very different diet from our offspring because they're, they're fed with milk. So then I came to the conclusion, well, that can't be the major constraint itself. If there would have been very strong selective pressure on parents feeding offspring, irrespective of whether the parents and offspring have a different diet, whether or not they live in a different environment, whether they are very different in size, then selection would have found a solution. To give you one example, which I also use in the paper, there are these frogs, I think they're mainly South American frogs, they, they put their eggs, they lay their eggs in the, um, you know, the sort of the heart of a bromeliad plant. So that always collects water <clears throat> and the, the female comes and lays eggs in those little water bodies. But there's no food there because it's very ephemeral and basically depends on rainwater. So they do feed their offspring. So the female goes back to that same little pond in the, the middle of the bromeliad and she lays what we call trophic eggs. So these are eggs and they're never meant to hatch, they're not fertilized, they basically serve as food. So here we have the parent and the offspring have a different diet, the parent and the offspring live in a different environment, and the parent and offspring have, um, are very different in size. But if the need arises, then selection, natural selection finds a way um, for the parent to look after the offspring. So size could be, size difference could be a, a strong um, constraint, but it clearly isn't. So the, the real answers to why ectothermic parents don't look after their offspring must be sought somewhere else, which is there's no evolutionary reason or selective advantage for them to do so. So maybe it's yeah. a bit of a straw man, but it, it was something that I was puzzled by whether that could be the answer, but it's not the answer. Yeah, so it's sort of an optimization question from the patterns perspective. Um, essentially, they they are, if I understand this correctly, uh, Madeline, they're saying I could rather focus on the next iteration because there isn't a lot I could do here because they, they are sort of independent, that they're getting their energy from the environment and it's not really food. So perhaps, so I, if I remember uh, reading the article, skimming the article, uh, there are some instances where they sort of stay with them for a little while, right, to provide them protection so that they could just take off. Um, I'm, I'm talking about the ectothermic uh, animals. Uh, is there a radiation there too, a little bit? Yes, there is. So this is one um, genus, Egernia, I think you pronounce it Egernia, and they're lizards. They do live in family groups, um, and probably one of the reasons why they live in family groups is they live in tunnels. So I'm not sure if they make the tunnels or whether they make use of ex existing tunnels. But there must be a limiting factor because, you know, you don't find suitable tunnels to live in as a lizard um, everywhere. So I think it mainly, so they, they still don't have any parental care. 
Whereas if you would expect parental care, it would be in a situation like this. But the only care that the parents give is indeed sort of protection. They, they allow the offspring to live with them for much longer, but they don't give them any nutrients or whatever. Because if you're an ectothermic female, you're much better off eating all the food that you have available yourself so you can grow bigger, because in ectotherms, the bigger the females are, the larger the number of eggs that they can lay, and also the larger the number of the offspring that they can produce if they're life-bearing ectotherms. So in that respect, they're much more selfish because it pays in evolutionary sense to be selfish because if I eat it all now, then my future reproductive success will be higher again. And as you say, the current kids I have, they can look after themselves. I, they not, don't need me. Yes, they need me maybe for protection. Crocodiles too, or alligators, I'm not quite sure. They look after the offspring for a little bit in the sense that they allow them in the vicinity to protect them. But that's about all they do, because again, they can feed themselves, they can keep themselves warm, um, because they just rely on the sun. I'm just looking after myself and my future babies. Yeah, I, I think you're having a good good thing for humans too, if you would like that. Um, kids are too expensive, I have to say. Um, so, so if you leave one time back, were dinosaurs ectothermic? Well, I think there's a huge debate about that, actually. So there was always the assumption that they were ectotherms. Um, but now they start to find more and more that they actually had feathers. And feathers, well, feathers could have two purposes, I guess. One could be uh, either camouflage, or three then, camouflage, or, you know, sexual dimorphism, or, you know, sexual display. Or, of course, insulation. And why would you have insulation if you're an ectotherm? So I'm not a dinosaur expert, um, but that's my understanding, that people are still are, are coming slowly to the realization that um, dinosaurs may actually have been endotherms, mm. or maybe sort mm. of halfway, I'm not sure. Or could, could, could we have had some varieties of dinosaurs who are ectothermic and others endothermic? I can imagine because, you know, the whole earth was full of dinosaurs, so there must have been a number of species. And of course, it's the non-avian dinosaurs that went extinct because our birds, of course, um, evolved from dinosaurs. So, yes, I can imagine that there were ectotherms and endotherms. Yeah. But who knows? We have to, again, we have to go back in time and find out. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if you have any data. Uh, I, I guess we would have had some data on sort of social structure of different types of dinosaurs. Um, was there any sort of uh, correlation between meat-eating and non-meat-eating dinosaurs in this context that you're aware of? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I do know that um, I remember Either I was at some sort of exhibition on dinosaurs, where they did make the claim that they were social in a sense that they found, maybe they found multiple nests um, close together. And from that they concluded that there must have some social relationships, which again, 
Why wouldn't they? But yeah, it could be the construction cost of the high-rise condo that they might be optimizing there. But uh, yeah, they could be. <laughs> we have humans living in these high-rise condos. They have no social interactions. They just live in little condominiums. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. So vicinity doesn't make a social being. That that is that's true. So, yep. so I want to go into another paper. Um, so this is entitled "When Does Cheating Pay." Worker reproductive parasitism in honeybees. So you see the notion that honeybee colonies are harmonious, isolated societies in which workers selflessly sacrifice their reproductive opportunities to serve their queen has long been debunked. Like any society, honeybee colonies contain selfish individuals that pursue their own interests or cheat at the expense of the colony, and these individuals need to be controlled. Yeah, so I can relate to this. Um, I think we see this in all, <laughs> all organisms to some extent. So, so what's the mechanism here for controlling the the misbehaving honeybees? Well, the the real control comes again from fitness optimization, really, because well, we have to go back to some basic honeybee biology then. So a honeybee colony is reigned by one queen. She's the mother of all the workers, and she mates with a large number of males once in her life, and she stores all the sperm of all those males in a special little organ she has in, inside her body, which is called the spermatheca. And then she never mates again. She never sees a male um, other than her sons. Now, the workers in the colony, as I said, they all have the same mother, but because the queen mates with so many different males, many of them have a different father, and we call them petrolines. Now, a very clever man, uh, Bill Hamilton, in the 1960s, realized that this, um, and he is the person who came up with this idea of kin selection, that you can transmit your genes not only by producing your own offspring, but also by helping your relatives produce theirs. So you're related to your nieces and nephews and cousins, etc. And if you manage to help um, your brother and sister, for example, in such a way that they can produce more offspring, then that's another way by which you can increase your fitness because part of your genes are also in all your relatives. So Hamilton extrapolated this also to behavior of social animals, in particular social insects. Um, because they are highly related, because, you know, they all have the same mother, and in many species they also have the same father, because not all queens are so promiscuous as the queen of a honeybee is. But then he also started to think, well, what does a gene really want to do? A gene, and you mentioned that earlier, wants to be transmitted to as many individuals in the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, so if you don't start thinking about what a gene could do in an organism, see the organism as a carrier of a gene, and the gene's purpose is to be transmitted to the next generation, then um, when it comes to producing males in a, in a honeybee colony, every worker would like to produce her own males, and they can, so they cannot mate, but they can still lay eggs. These eggs are not fertilized, and in Hymenoptera, which is all ants, bees, and 
wasps unfertilized eggs and females unfertilized eggs. So because the workers can't mate, they can still lay eggs and so therefore they produce sons. Now half of their genes will be in their son because they basically give the son half of their complete set of genome. The queen, when she produces males, um, so these are the brothers of the workers, um, she also gives half of her genome to the brothers, but only a quarter of that genome, sorry, this is becoming a bit complicated and I can't make any drawings now. So the workers share only a quarter of the genes in their brothers, whereas they share half of the genes if they will produce a son. So in, in terms of transmitting most of your genes, they should be producing their own sons and not help the queen produce brothers. However, that would be the case if all the workers share the same father, but they do not. So most of the workers are only half-sisters, which means that the relatedness between an individual worker and the average male produced by all the other workers is much lower than the relatedness to the sons produced by the queen. Mm. So it's sort of this, this um, agreement, evolutionary agreement, that if we want to increase the transmission of our genes, we're better off to agree that we refrain, we workers refrain from laying our own eggs and we let the queen produce all the sons. So that is one. So there's a, a selective advantage of not laying your own eggs. But this is where the cheating comes in, because if I can do it and everyone else doesn't know that I'm doing it, then I win. It's game but this is then. Exactly. But this is where the police force comes in. Because just like human societies, if there's no police, everything will break down. The same is true in insect societies because of this selfishness. So I lay an egg, but my sisters or my half-sisters, they will recognize my egg as not being laid by the queen because the queen has this neat trick. When she lays an egg, she puts a secret stamp on it. And I say secret because no one has been able to find what the origin, well, other than that it comes from the queen, but what the well, the actual mark is that she uses. We've looked at pheromones, we've looked at, you know, physical differences we can't distinguish, but we do know that the workers can distinguish. So they there's come no, into a no cell. There's no seed on the egg or anything like that? Not that we can see, but it must be there. Yeah, so I was called it the royal seal, which is invisible to us, but it's clearly not invisible to the bees. So they come in, or a work, police worker comes into a cell, she sniffs it with her antennae, because the antennae are really the, um, the nose, and she says, mm -mm, no royal seal, I'm going to eat this. So the police force is there to keep the um, the workers under control in case they decide to cheat. But of course, it's, it's far more complicated because there's also the queen emits um, pheromones, queen pheromones that are distributed across the whole colony, which basically tells the colony the queen is fine. She's doing just fine. Um, 
which means that the workers basically behave as the, the way they should behave in the sense they shouldn't cheat if they do cheat they police the eggs as soon as that queen pheromone is gone because the queen's gone then the policing also breaks down and then it's it basically every worker for herself so it's as always it's it's very complicated so there's there's pheromonal control or you can say i would prefer to call it pheromonal signaling because it basically tells the workers the queen's there all's fine and then there's um, so that's not really cheating that's basically everyone benefits from listening to that signal and then there's the police force in case you're really trying to cheat then we'll make sure um you can't so, so what's the incentive of the police force? Um, again, you know, they they should have the same sort of objective function, I would think, right? They would want to transmit their own genes as well. So what is their incentive in the system? Is it, I mean, unlike in the human systems where, you know, you could be killed by something, I, I don't know, I'm just wondering what is sort of the societal incentive for the police in this system? Well, the point is that everyone, so everyone in in principle would like to cheat, but if everyone cheats, then the colony basically falls down. Right. So that's the, the, the bigger incentive. It just doesn't work. It's just like a human society where everyone is really only thinking about themselves. That wouldn't work either. You can cope with a, a number of people um, being completely selfish and not adhering to rules, etc. But if everyone would be doing it, it would just be complete mayhem and it just doesn't function. So then the colonies that are full with cheating workers, they will just be selected against because they will never be able to raise new queens and never be able to successfully raise drones. So their genes are basically going down the drain. So this is this is sort of programmatic, Madeline. So I'm just wondering, you know, in human societies, we recruit police, we give them salaries, we give them incentives to to in, to impose certain rules and regulations. Uh, but if the queen is not really um, hiring these guys, right? Is she? The police, I mean. No, she is not in in honeybees. But if you think about um, other social insects that have a different sort of lifestyle, in particular, um, Rupolidia wasps. So these are wasps. They produce one nest a year, so they're annual social insects. So every spring, a a um, a fertilized female. This she's called a foundress. She will start a new colony. And these wasps are different in the sense that they're no, no true queens and they're no true workers. Why am I saying that? The workers can make the decision to go off by themselves, mate, and then become a founderist themselves. Yeah. So the, the founders, the initial founders work a female, she will start producing offspring, daughters, and these daughters can make the decision we're going to stay and help mum or we're going to go off and um, do our own sort of thing. Free market. It's um, it's more of a free market, but it's not completely free because of the timing issue. So as I said, these are annual social in insects, so they depend on a season. 
Now, if you're born late in a season and you want to become a foundress, you think, oh, I'm not going to work for mum, I'm <laughs> going to do my own. Then the season may well be way too short. So then you're better off staying at home and help your mum. So that's often, that's a different kind of constraint again. And um, many people have studied, especially um, someone from India, Raghavendra Gadaga, has been spending his whole life and his group um, studying Ropalidia wasps in uh, Bangalore. And because the colonies are so small, you can individually mark them. So you can really study all the interactions between the different individuals. And there it is true that the foundress female, so you can call her big mama, she starts beating up other workers or her daughters if they do not perform, if they're lazy, if they don't do the right work or whatever. But she can have total control because we're talking about, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 individuals at any one time. I'm not quite sure. Whereas in honeybees, we're talking about 20, 30, 40, 50,000 individuals. So then, of course, the queen has no physical control over her workers. In species like Ropolidia, the queen or the founding mother, she has, and you do see physical beating up, or, you know, it's often ritualized aggressive behavior. Well, if you don't do what I, um, I want you to do now, then I might evict you or whatever. So that's why social insects are fascinating, because all these different examples um, exist. You just find a different species, and it, you know, there's another great story to tell. Yeah, it looks like humans have been observing them. We seem to have learned from them. Uh, it appears that there are a lot of uh, score for venture capitalism in um, in the bee colony. No, <laughs> especially the one that you just described. Um, so I want to go into another paper. So the it says that the Brood Parasites Guide to Inclusive Fitness Series. You mentioned Hamilton's theory before of inclusive fitness, provides a framework for understanding the evolution of social behavior between kin, including parental and alloparental care. Uh, so you say brood uh, par parasitism is a reproductive tactic in which parasites exploit the care of other individuals of the same species or different species. Um, here, drawing from examples in birds and societal insects, we identified two insights into brood parasitism that stem from inclusive fitness theory. So, could you could you talk a bit more about the inclusive fitness theory and how parasites fit into it? Yeah, so inclusive fitness theory is the same as skin selection. Um, it's often the the phrases are often um, used simultaneously. So that's the idea that my genes are also in my brothers um, and in his children, and if they have children, their children, etc. So I can incre increase the transmission of my genes either by producing offspring myself or by helping relatives produce their offspring. And that's why kin selection is often an easier word to understand than inclusive fitness. So inclusive fitness is all the different ways by which you can increase the transmission of your genes, either by direct fitness, producing my own, and indirect fitness, helping my relatives. If you add those two up, then you have the total, my total fitness, and that is um, inclusive fitness. So it includes both levels. So this Does this make sense? 
Yeah, it does. So this has to be programmatic, right, Madeline? I mean, these surveys uh, are not, you know, running around with Excel spreadsheets, uh, you know, putting everybody's gene here and there and, you know, trying to optimize. So it has to be totally programmatic, right? I mean, there has to be some, I mean, it's not conscious decisions. These are programmatic decisions. That's right. It's not a, as you said, I love the idea of bees running around with Excel spreadsheets and notebooks, um, but clearly they don't. So it's selection again. It's selecting for behavior that increases inclusive fitness. So if my behavior, even when I'm not consciously aware of it, if my behavior assists my brother in producing more offspring than he otherwise could, if my behavior would not be um, what it is, then that behavior is selected for. So that's the idea. So now, the parasite. Sorry. No, so so I, I get that. So over time, just a selection pressure gets you to a more optimum, inclusive uh, fitness uh, posture. Just 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 uh, just selection pressure. It's selection combined with what we talked about earlier, which is constraints. Yeah. Because optimizing is a difficult word to use because fitness is always relative. Because what I do in my neighborhood, say, um, so, so say you have a species that is that, that can be found in different countries, say, or very different geographical areas. They are, you can't compare the fitness from, say, um, honeybees in Australia with the fitness of honeybees in the United States because they're not part of the same gene pool. So fitness is always relative. So what works really well in Australia may not work as well in the, in, in the United States because they have different environments. So the selective pressure might be different or might be subtly different. So, so that's why you can't talk about optimal behavior because optimal relative to what? It's always relative to something else. Yeah, so it's sort of a longitudinal question. So has there been any experiment that we take an Australian colony and move them to the US and that we observe them and vice versa? Have there been any experiments around there and, and, and uh, see what happens? No, but of course there's great examples of invasive species these were not experiments but where a species is taken out of its own um in the environment in which it evolved moved to a completely different environment with the prospect of controlling something else and then it starts doing something completely different so australia is full of invasive species that have gone terribly wrong Cane toads are probably one that most people heard about because also it's an issue in Hawaii. I think they're a problem in Hawaii. I know they're in Hawaii, but I'm not sure if they actually provide the same problem as they do in the United States. Anyway, so the cane toads originally come from, I think, South America. They were introduced in different parts of the world to control uh, pests of cane. 
it just so happens to be that they don't actually eat the pests that they were introduced to control in Australia. And they've created havoc. They, their behavior is so different in Australia than it is in their native country mm. because you are in a completely different selective environment. So there are many inadverted experiments, if you wish, where you can show the, the, the interplay between genetics and environment, and they can give a completely different outcome, which is really interesting from an evolutionary point of view, but especially when we talk about invasive species gone wrong, biodiversities, it's a complete disaster. Yes, I will just touch on a little bit of a detour, uh, Marilyn. So I had one of your colleagues from University of Chicago on, and he was talking about adaptive evolution. Uh, it is not about random mutation and selection. It's really the organism actively seeking to evolve given the environmental conditions. Where do you stand on that idea? I don't think an organism is act actively evolving. Um, it's so. It, was this in a context of adapting to climate change, or no. more general? He's arguing basically evolution is about active evolution. You know, it's not that organisms sitting around and looking for random mutation and then figure out you know that mutation is better than the other one and then they get selected. Um, he's saying organism, if there's environmental pressure, like you say it will actually seek to, to optimize within that. Um, well, that's interesting. How does he see seek? I think I have a, a bit of a problem with that word because you mentioned it earlier, um, bees don't run around with Excel spreadsheets and okay. I don't think any organism is actively thinking, okay, I'm in a bit of a pickle now, so how am I going to make sure that my offspring is going to adapt to this particular environment? Not Maybe what he... Yeah. I mean, he, he was talking about the machinery, so he, he talks about, I think he talks about mobile DNA, you know, the DNA itself sort of reconfiguring itself in the, in the presence of um, environmental stress and other effects. Um, I mean, it's a different topic, but yeah, just want to get your perspective on it. Oh, well, no, but I think it's extremely interesting, but of course it's a bit difficult if I don't quite understand what your colleague is trying to say. Um, but I mean, what I do think is that if there's, if selection pressure is really stringent, for example, uh, organisms live in a very marginal environment, then selection probably is much more, is it probably a much stronger force. Um, however, selection can only work if there's genetic variation or if there is variation that it can act on. Right. So maybe, so this is maybe a detour on a detour, but something I'm working on now is trying to illustrate the evolutionary process using humans, uh, human evolution as, as an example. Why humans? Well, for multiple reasons. We're obsessed with ourselves because we <laughs> are humans. We tend to think we're really special. But also, if you really you think saying, about it... Are you saying we're not special? Come on. <laughs> it depends how you define special, of course. 
But if you really think about it, we split from a common ancestor with chimpanzees between five and seven million years ago. And if you then look at how our species has evolved, that is amazing. It is so fast that some skeptics might argue, okay, there you are, humans are proof that God exists and that we didn't evolve because there's no way we could have evolved so quickly. And if you take, and of course some people do make that argument, but then if you dig deep, there are these amazingly interesting events that are seem so unlikely that happened in our evolutionary past. If you put them all together, it makes complete sense that we are now what we are. To give you the first example, um, so, you know, for speciation, for one species to branch into two, if they constantly interbreed, then of course they constantly mix their genetic material and that dilutes variation. So that is a very slow process. But if now something happens that prevents those two species from mixing and mixing the DNA again, then you reduce variation or you, you basically create variation, not reduce it, you create variation by now having two different sort of genetic lineages on which selection connect. Now, our ancestors, some say, got down from the trees and they can say, you know, chimps also come down from trees, they also can walk on two legs for a little while, etc. So something must have happened and that prevented our ancestors or the ancestors that led to us from interbreeding with the ancestors to let, that led to chimpanzees. So it seems that there was something very simple. Two chromosomes in our ancestors got stuck together and became one chromosome. In chimpanzees or the ancestors that led to chimpanzees, those chromosomes stayed separate. And we know that because gorillas and orangutans also have the same number of chromosomes as chimpanzees do. It's only humans that have lost a chromosome. Losing a chromosome has huge effects on whom you can mate with because you're very unlikely to pro successfully produce offspring if you mate with someone who's got a different set of chromosomes. Just because of, you know, when the gametes form um, and then the egg is fertilized you have to have the same number of chromosomes for this to work. So this is a fluke that must have given our ancestors some sort of advantage, or at least there was no disadvantage, which means that all the weirdness that was present in those individuals that had those fused chromosomes were now selected for, or at least not selected against, and the lineage that led to humans and the lineage that led to chimpanzees started to diverge. Then there were other real funny things like genes got duplicated in the human lineage, which then led to something and clearly gave an advantage. And another example is the way the, the brain grows. Um, it basically grows from the middle. It's like, you know, blowing up a balloon. So the air in the middle that expands the rest of the balloon. And if you think of the brain, the neurons, the neural cortex is, of course, the outside of, say, the balloon. So you, you blow up the balloon. If there's a little bit of air in it, you have a small surface. If there's a lot of air in it, you have a big surface. 
if it's a brain, you have a big surface, it means you have a lot of neurons on the outside. Now, the differentiation of the cells that start producing the neurons, um, they come from the, the, the stem of the brain, say. They start to divide. If they keep dividing, it becomes bigger. The balloon keeps continue to grow. If they differentiate really quickly, they're no longer a stem cell, but they become a, a neuron cell, then you end up with a very small brain. Now, the number of times that these, these uh, stem cells um, duplicate before they start to differentiate is affected by a particular gene of which we have multiple copies compared to chimpanzees and gorillas. So their brains stay much smaller. For some reason, we had this gene duplication in our evolutionary history and our brain became larger. Mm. Now, etc. So you, you can find all these rapid changes, but it doesn't mean that we sought to adapt to our environment. So it's it's the seek that I have yes, trouble this, with. I guess what you're saying, that set of accidents that has a clear effect on the outcome. Uh, the only thing I would argue, Madeline, is that um, I'm not sure if you're evolved. I mean, in 2022, we have a country going in and killing another country. <laughs> you know, this is not signs yeah. of evolution. These are signs of sort of going back in time. I mean, chimpanzees would have been great leaders compared to many of our leaders today, right? I mean, they seem to have compassion, empathy, general ideas of humanity, but we don't have it. Well, actually, I hate to disappoint, but chimpanzees are quite brutal, quite and brutal. they have warfare. Yeah, it's the bonobos who are um, much nicer. So we always talk about chimpanzees, but the bonobos are also called chimpanzees, but they are called the pygmy chimpanzee, and the normal normal chimpanzee is called the common chimpanzee. So the common, but we're equally related to both of them. Yeah. So we had a common ancestor that led to the pygmy chimpanzee and common chimpanzee and human. So let's say there's well, two branches and their brains diverged. Um, so the bonobos are much nicer. They don't have warfare. They solve problems with sex instead of violence. Um, the females have much more control in society, whereas the, the common chimpanzees they, they do have warfare, they have brutal battles within their own society, particularly mm. amongst males. So I would be a bit, <laughs> bit careful in making that comparison. Yes. Having said that, um, your comment about whether we are still evolving, that's actually something I started to think about because of this, this book that I'm trying to write at the moment. And that's that's something many people often mention, not so much in, because of the war in Ukraine, because it's only a month old, and which of course is just completely horrible and devastating, but because of all the reproductive technology that we now have to our disposal. You know, people who, under normal circumstances, would not be able to have offspring because they have some defect or incompatibilities or whatever, now can. However, that is still 
And that's an argument people then use, you know, there's no natural selection anymore because it's all artificial selection. We can decide who is going to have children and who is not. That's, of course, contraceptives and you name it. But that is only in the rich Western world. Still, I think, in a vast majority of, of people currently alive, there is no such thing like reliable birth control, abortion, when there's something... Um, deemed incorrect with the fetus or even all these reproductive technologies. So I think we tend to dismiss evolution as it is, you know, as it is happening now too easily. And also don't forget, so the examples I gave, yes, they have led to rapid evolutionary change, but that's still rapid of evolutionary time. And it would be interesting to come back and say, I don't know, 200,000 years and see what humans are like then. I mean, there will be some artificial selection too, clearly. But um, but anyway, I'm, I'm not sold on this. We have stopped evolving yet. And um, it's, it's on my list of things to do to find out if they're actually good examples um, that show yeah. that we are still evolving. Yeah, Linda, there are two questions there. One is, are we evolving? But what I believe the more relevant question is, are we evolving in which direction? So, for instance, I think there is enough evidence that uh, a good, uh, I think the lead and other aspects have, uh, have reduced human IQ in the US by about seven points. It's dramatic reduction for half the population. And so a, a larger question is, where are humans heading? You know, there's a general tendency, I think, uh, for us to think that we are progressing when we think about evolution. But it doesn't appear like we are progressing. We, we are digressing from, from wherever we got to. Uh, and, and if that were true, uh, it's a really interesting question where we will be in 100 years from now. Progressing is is an interesting word because that's a misconception. People tend to think that evolution is progressing towards something, which then implies that there's some sort of trajectory that it wants to go to. And that's where this idea of we are the pinnacle of evolution sort of comes from. And we call it a fallacy of progress because evolution has no foresight. It is not going towards anything. So this idea of progression, and I understand what in, in evolutionary terms is, is a falsehood, but I understand where it comes from in terms of humans. And that is because one could make the argument that cultural evolution is much more important now than natural selection is to humanity. And then, of course, you can come up with ideas of progression. I mean, you know, Stephen Pinker a few years ago wrote this book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, in which he, he tried to argue that human society has actually become less violent and not more violent. And he has some impressive data that show that, you know, the number of homicides, etc., 
even including horrible wars, because this was also prior to, um, you know, the, the trouble that happened in the Middle East, the numbers apparently still hold up that life for the average human being now is much better and much safer than it has been in, say, the Middle Ages or even before. So culturally, I think you can talk about progression. And that's also, I think, one of the reasons why the world or most of the world is so horrified about what's happening in Ukraine, because we thought we had progressed to the extent that no nation in the world would do such a thing again. And that's definitely proven wrong. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so I want to uh, come, uh, finish up with your review paper. Can see the colony for the bees, behavioral perspectives of biological individuality. So you say the question, what is an individual? That's not often arise in studies within the field of behavioral ecology. Generally, behavioral ecologists do not think about what makes an individual because they tend to use intuitive working concepts of individuality. So, so when you run studies, so are you arguing that the individual variations are very noisy, that the data that you're collecting in aggregate doesn't really tell you much? That depends on your sample size and it depends on the on how big the variation is. This paper came about because the first author was one of my PhD students and he has a background in history and philosophy of science. So most of our um, meetings deviated completely from the topic we were supposed to be talking about because we talked about all sorts of philosophical uh, points. And the, but the organism that he was doing his PhD on is a slime mold, an acellular slime mold. It's, it became famous under the, the name of Blob because a colleague of mine who's now back in France, she's done a lot of social uh, media work and, uh, and other work advertising or promoting this organism as the Blob and all the amazing things it can do. So this is basically a bag of DNA, it has multiple nuclei and all these other things. It has no, no neurons, but yet over the years, myself and many colleagues have shown that it is capable of making decisions. You can ask it to solve problems, you know, ask in a biological um, sense, and it can solve problems. It shows um, preferences, and dislikes. But Jules, the first author of the paper, and I at some stage started thinking, okay, when, so when you do experiments, you repeat the experiment multiple times using different individuals. So if I want to know what humans do in a particular context, I study many humans in that particular context and then come up, as you say, with an average behavior. So I hope that my sample size is so large that I've covered all the different um, ways in which individuals can react to that context and I come up with an average answer to that question. Now what we do with this weird organism, this slime mold, we cut it up in pieces because you can cut it up and each cut will become its own individual. 
So this is where the question came from, okay, when we do our experiments and we cut it up in different individuals, and then we all give them the same context and see what their behavior is like, are we actually looking at one individual or are we looking at separate individuals? So physically, of course, they're separate, but are they actually all the same individual because they come from the same same um, parent, if you wish, which is not actually parent because you just cut it up. It's like I cut you up in different bits and each of your little bits grows into you again. And then I ask the aggregate of you, well, what would you do under this, this circumstances? So all the papers that we've published over the last 10 years or so on this organism, no one has asked us when we send it to for reviews to journals, no one has ever asked us, well, are you really replicating your experiments or are you always working on the exact same individual? So that's being a philosopher, we came up with this, this idea of, okay, we have to make other people aware that what they see as an individual comes naturally to them because of the actual organism they work on. But of course, other people have asked the same question. Um, for example, if you want, if you're interested in how genes or DNA gets transmitted to the next generation, should you look at the DNA or should you look at the individual or should you look at the family? So there's all these different levels of of foci that you can um, use depending on the particular question you're asking. Yeah. Bless you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so, so the, the implication is that when you run studies, if I understand this correctly, Madeline, when you run studies uh, from a scientific perspective, you really have to think through the variations that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And you say here philosophers naturally do that, but, but biologists and scientists don't. I think philosophers tend to overthink things, whereas <laughs> biologists or scientists in general are, are more um, intuitive and pragmatic. Well, this is just the way this would work. You got to publish and, a paper. Yep, but um, philosophers do make you think. So he was one of my favorite PhD students, just because it constantly made me think, because philosophers do come at the same question often from different angles. And I think that's one thing I enjoyed the most of my academic career. That Because, you know, if we're all talking to people who think exactly the same way, then, well, first of all, you start to think that you're always right and no one can always be right. But also your ideas are never challenged. And then if someone comes at the same question from a completely different angle, you start to think, hmm, I hadn't thought of that. And maybe there are different ways of looking at the problem. So this was an interesting detour. I still think it was a detour because in the end, we have to be pragmatic and we go, you know, we, we do our experiments the way we always did them. We just thought it was interesting to make it clear to people, hang on, maybe you haven't thought about it. And maybe it's not important in your context, but at least have a bit of a think. What is an individual? 
Yeah, uh, so so I'll just say this, Marilyn, just to get your perspective. So I feel strongly that most of the innovation happens at the intersection of disciplines anymore. Uh, diving deep into a discipline with a lot of knowledge in that discipline, I'm not sure is, is really going to help you innovate, right? Because you need a lot of information I mean, we have artificial intelligence touching every discipline that we know of today. So we have foundational technologies that go across disciplines, right? So philosophy is, a, is, a, is something that goes across discipline. So I feel like scientists spending so much time on that bench, just mixing chemicals, may um, not innovate anything. I mean, they're, they're just wasting time. Well, look at the mRNA um, vaccines that we now have for COVID. If scientists would not have spent all this time on the bench, we would not be vaccinated now. But so I think it's, it's it is working in a sense that um, people stop dying in the same <laughs> in the same numbers as they did. Um, I take your point, and of course, it's a point that many politicians often made have made and continue to make, I think you need both. You need to have deep understanding of your field. And then ideally you get other people in who have deep understanding of their own field. And that's often where innovations happen, I think. So I'm, I'm just reading a book just now, which goes through the whole history of the gene. And um, it talks about the the discovery of the double helix, where you know uh, Rosalind Franklin made this this very famous um, crystallography photo of a double helix, which could only be interpreted by people who were really trying to understand what the structure of DNA was. So this is you know probably one of the most famous examples where individuals had deep knowledge and were completely obsessed, absorbed with one particular question, use different techniques, come together, lo and behold, they figured out what the structure of DNA is. So it's, it's we always think it's Watson Creek and Rosalind um, Franklin, although it wasn't Franklin who got the Nobel Prize because she had died by then, but the person she was begrudgingly working with. But it was many more people who contributed to that, that whole idea. But again, so yes, you need this cross-pollination, but still every discipline that contributes to something has to be founded in basic knowledge. So we should not give up on scientists spending a lot of time at their bench, but we should encourage, especially, and it's becoming more and more problematic, I think, for young scientists because of the pressure they have to have so many papers, they, have to go to conferences, they have to get money, etc. There's not a lot of time anymore to branch out and and to even make mistakes often. That's that's a problem I really have with the Australian system, which is a British system, but PhDs are so short that you can't waste a year trying to do something that fails. So you have to be almost handed by a supervisor project that is bound to work 
because otherwise you may not get your PhD in, in three and a half years. And in that respect, the American system, I think, is much better, um, well, from my perspective, because I think it allows people to venture out and explore and broaden their mind. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting, Madeline. So what, what you're arguing, I think, is that, is that dive deep and collaborate is, yes. is where you're going to make, make a difference. Um, since I didn't dive deep in anything, um, I have shallow knowledge of a lot of things, but there might be, and I'm wondering, you know, looking forward, are we coming to sort of a network? So, so for, for instance, all the educational systems, you know, we have closed book exams, um, just Google it. I mean, why, why, do, why do we have closed book exams? Why do we, why do we get kids to uh, remember things? I mean, you can just go to Google and, and get the data, couldn't you? Yes, I know, uh, because you still need enough. You need to know enough to know whether what you Google is actually correct. Because, as you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. <laughs> yes. So I, I take your point with respect to um, closed book exams. But don't we need to, you know, it's like having a computer. You still need basic software on your computer, otherwise it won't run. So don't we need some basic software installed, capabilities installed in our brain to make it run, to build on it? And I know this is a big discussion in education circles at the moment. Yeah. And of course, uh, my age also plays a role because, you know, this is how I grew up, so therefore it must have been right, which of course is not necessarily true. And also, I think there's um, people like you who know a little bit about a lot have an enormously important role to play because that's why you can make video casts like this and you can talk to people of many different disciplines. I mean, if, if, as you say, you never left your bench and you only mix chemicals, well, what are you going to talk to a philosopher about, for example? And yeah, that's a great thing about being human, isn't it? We're all different and we all contribute to society in a different way. Yeah, I take your point, Madeline. So, I mean, fundamentally, a computer with an operating system is not going to be very useful because you have to you have to essentially do some basic stuff. And so knowledge, you know, I look at Finland, for instance, they, they're sort of changing their education system quite dramatically. They're basically saying, you know, physics 101, 102, 103 type education is not really necessary. Um, but the student sort of designs the education. And I'm a big proponent of that. Um, I'm a big proponent of there is no need to teach students Newtonian mechanics anymore because computers are beautiful like Newtonian mechanics. And so if you're going into physics, you're going to string theory today, and that, that's where all the variation is. If anything deterministic is done by humans, it's probably not really needed, I would argue. I, I know that you're far away from you. <laughs> your topic of interest, but I just want oh, to get no, you. No, so, do you know how long this um, has been running in Finland? I mean, can I? Is, are it's there any been, outcomes or anything? It's very recent. 
it's very recent yep. and I have you know very very little knowledge about it but the basic premise there is that let the students design what they want to do from a menu of options so let's not you know uh, give them this curriculum that is sort of stringent and static um, that's a, that's the basic idea well i I like that idea a lot. And what, what, so what if, what if um, we have one compulsory unit and that is history and philosophy of science, or at least history of science, that people understand where, well, that Newton was an individual and that what he came up with was actually really important at the time. You see what I mean? I've, I've, we, yeah. who, I, I don't actually know who made, who said this. We all stand on the shoulders of giants, and often I think we forget who the giants were or the knowledge we build on. And I think, well, maybe I just I'm a, I'm a curious person. That's a very personal um, no, preference of mine. I'd like to understand where knowledge comes from. Yeah, that's definitely true. I, I think that's the beauty of the United States education. We have a lot of flexibility. To, mm. to design where we want to go. Where I grew up in India, uh, it, it is very, very systematic and very low flexibility. So you essentially decide to become an engineer when you are, I don't know, 14 years old, 13 years old. And once you select, once you check that box, you can get, <laughs> get away from it. Uh, and so that type of education. I think we are running out of utility for those things, I think. No, I agree. I agree. I don't know what yes. Australia is. Uh, I would imagine sort of halfway. Um, you have a fair amount of flexibility, but there is still fair amount of systematization, I would imagine, right? It is, and this is constantly changing as well. So it's um, it used to be that, for example, if you did science at university, then the first year is, is basically set in stone. So these are all the units of study and subjects that you have to do, and there's a little bit of flexibility. And then at some stage, but now I think the students in, in first year have to already decide on what their major is going to be. So is it going to be biology, physics, mathematics, which I think is just wrong. Because how can you know? You're, you know, this is your first year at university. You may have really liked biology at high school, but maybe when you come to university, you're just like, nah, maths is much more interesting. So it's becoming far more stringent. So I think the Australian system is evolving to something that's the complete diver, uh, the opposite of what you just described that's happening in Finland. And I think I would go for the, the Finnish system over the Australian system. And I can say that because I don't have a job anymore anyway, so no one can set me making the statements. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Madeline. Thanks so much for spending time with me. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. 
If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.